there, listeners. My voice coming back to you after a bit of a break. We are back. We're back after a month-long unplanned hiatus from the show. And I know a number of the fans of the show have reached out. Yes, Nadine and I are fine. We are good. We just got, to be honest, really busy. (laughs) Really busy. Uh, And as if you listen to the show for a while, you'd know that we're of the mind that your self-care, your well-being, your wellness shouldn't necessarily get eroded by making a lot of to-do lists and overwhelming yourself, which is not to say we don't do a lot. We do a lot, Nadine and I, but we hit a point where we were at saturation. To be honest, it was mostly me. Um, I've had a, a couple of big projects I've been bringing out into the world, things I am incredibly excited to get to share with you in the next few months. Oh my God. But it meant that we hit this pinch point. Um, we had some technical snafus, just some stuff that came up that every time we plan to put an episode out in the last month, we are like, you know what? Either the audio is bad or the ideas aren't clear or guests needed to reschedule for their health, well-being and happiness. And so we opted to take a little break, but we're back and we are back with not only episode 75, which feels astronomical since the start of this show, but we are back with a guest who, when you'll hear me gush a lot in this episode, because to be honest, I'm, I'm a huge Kelly McGonigal fangirl. Uh, and, and I'm aware that I can't possibly be start the president of her fan club because she probably already got one. Kelly McGonigal is a person who, when I first thought about starting better than fine, I had the dream team list in my head of who were my someday, maybe I'll have them on the show. And I think I also, I say that to her in this episode live and you'll hear her be like, well, you, you could have just called me. And I was like, ah, I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready to produce the interview that I did in this episode. So let me tell you a bit about Kelly McGonigal and why I have such an insane girl crush on her. Kelly McGonigal is a health psychologist. She works, she studied and works at Stanford. She teaches at Stanford, but the nexus of her work, the essence of it is using science to inform healthy and thriving living. And while most of her work is on, I think she's more famous for, I should say, she's most famous for her books on like willpower and stress. But what we talk about mostly in this episode is her most recent book, the joy of movement. And it is our current edge of science of what movement, what physical practice does to change our experience of our own reality, to foster positive emotion, feeling powerful, feeling confident. Like, why is it that, like, what is the runner's high? That's the essence of that book. So that was my favorite book in the beginning of 2020, it's informed a lot of my own work in the last two years. And I personally believe is one of those books that every fitness professional fitness enthusiast should read so that they understand better the experience that they could empower in their client. But also that anybody who like, doesn't get it, doesn't get the movement thing, oh, I'm not, I'm not one of those people that they should read. (laughs) 
because it will also help them maybe see themselves through a different lens, see movement through a different lens, see a different lens of what is possible. And so Kelly McGonigal's not just a scientist who likes movement. She created this book that I believe is a vehicle for a different understanding of what becomes possible in our bodies when we're not so focused on like fitness influencer marketing, but on crafting an experience for ourselves with intention and using our bodies as the vehicle, which for me is the essence of embodied well-being, right? Everything good we're ever going to create comes from this physical body that we walk around in. And so the pleasure to get to talk to somebody who not only really gets it, but actually shaped my awareness of those concepts was an incredible pleasure. She's also a lovely human being. And I think you'll hear that shine through this episode, her positive intention. And let's add the layer. She also teaches dance and yoga and group strengthening classes. Like she's, she's a fitness practitioner too. She walks the walk and then points to the science and that's her talk. So I hope whether you are a positive psychology practitioner who's trying to get the somatic thing, whether you are a movement fitness person who just wants to like give more gusto to the practice that you already produce, or you are a person with a body looking to explore your own experience, there is a lot in this episode for you. I hope you take the love and passion and joy from it that Kelly and I both brought into creating it. Thanks for listening. Let's get to it. Fitness, wellness, well-being, relationships, our own minds, building a life that works for each of us. And of course, the care of the body that we live those lives in. Welcome to Better Than Fine. This is a podcast about living a life above zero you know, one that's better than fine. And it's for those people who are looking to explore themselves, one another, and the lessons of the world around us. And we do that by exploring the intersection of traditional wisdom and modern science. And I'm your host, Darlene Marshall. I'm an expert in wellness and well-being with nearly a decade in the fitness industry. I've got a master's degree in applied positive psychology from the University of Pennsylvania, which is the scientific study of well-being. But really, I've spent my adult life exploring the human condition, looking for leverage points that I can use to unstick others along their journey. And this podcast is one of those unsticking tools. So let's get to it. All right, I'm nerd girling out and feeling my excitement rise as I utter these words. Kelly McGonigal, welcome to Better Than Fine. Thank you for having me. I I have to gush a little bit, and I think it's my right as the host of the show that when I dreamed of starting this show and I put together my like someday maybe all-star list, you were one of the top names. So I, I feel an actualizing moment in getting the absolute pleasure to talk to you about things that we both And, really and you know what's funny is I'm pretty sure you never invited me, right? Like, was I on some fantasy list and then you never contacted me? Is that um, right? I, oh yeah, but I feel like I had some groundwork to lay before I was at. You know, I've had a few rejections like, along the way. We did have we. There was an elaborate 
thing that we went through to get me on this show, which we should talk about. But also if you had asked, I would have said, yeah. So I just went like for people listening or watching, it's a good reminder that, uh, yeah, I would have, I would have been like your first guest. Oh, that I don't think that I was ready <laughs> to have this conversation then. Um, should I, should I share the story of how yes. you ended yes. up here? I think um, you should reenact it, but <laughs> <laughs> um, for people watching on the video, I'm reenacting it right now. Um, so you shared to your Instagram stories, someone else's dance and lip sync video celebrating that you were the guest on their show. And then also included the text that that's how to get you on our show. I DM'd you and said, Oh, is that all I have to do? Um, do you remember what your response was? I probably do it. <laughs> your response was inspire me. <laughs> so I went deep into the archives of myself and I'm like, how do I inspire Kelly McGonigal? And my answer of course was Madonna. Yes. Uh, because in the beginning of into the group, she says, so you can dance. For inspiration. For inspiration. That Come is so, okay. When, when I saw you do that and that came up because that is one of my favorite songs of all time It's like top five. And um, of course it's the scene from Desperately Seeking Susan which is one of my favorite movies of all time for no particularly good reason except I grew up idolizing Madonna and New York City. And there's something about that song that to me always speaks to the idea that um, that not only dancing and music, but also fashion and where you live, they open doors of possibility. So I know we're gonna talk a little bit about how movement can help you access different, different parts of yourself, different qualities, different sides of yourself that you value. And for whatever reason, I think that movie and that song, just it, it embodies to me the idea that you can aspire to become who you want to be and, and step into that. So when you started singing that song, I was just so excited and you lip synced it so well. It was really, yeah. I was channeling it was, my, my I mean, watched it karaoke habit. Ah, <laughs> yes. Um, but I love how you frame this, this idea that all of these different ways that we can express ourselves, create a feedback loop toward how we want to be and how we want to feel. And if we allow ourselves to create these opportunities for expression, whether it's in our environment or our bodies or our voices, we can affect our own state and create an experience for ourselves. Um, so way to pull that from like random social media and also the kismet aspect of like, of course I picked your favorite song, <laughs> um, but you're here now. And I wanna ask you to share with us, uh, we have a mutual love affair with movement. Um, can you tell me about your love affair with movement, please? Yeah. Love affair, lifelong love, love affair. I, you know, the way that I think about movement is I did fall in love very early. It was almost love at first sight with um, aerobics and calisthenics in the 1980s. And, um, you know, it's so growing up, I was the clumsiest kid you can imagine in gym class, like slowest kid by far, couldn't catch anything, couldn't throw anything. I mean, really embarrassing. And uh, somehow when I did aerobics, it was about synchronizing to music and synchronizing your body to somebody else. And it's like, it was a, a totally different experience of movement. And I got, it was like that euphoria that I still feel today when I exercise a lot of different forms to music. 
Um, but it was, it was just a revelation. And so I got hooked really early, like third grade doing leg lifts in the basement to Pat Benatar and all of that. Um, and I very quickly also noticed that exercise helped me deal with stress. You know, I can remember by the time I was in fifth grade doing um, exercise TV shows after school and being very aware that it helped me deal with uh, my anxiety, which is, uh, you know, back in the 80s, nobody talked about mental health and children. I don't think anyone even knew children had mental health problems. It was, and certainly in my family, you weren't allowed to have any mental health problems. I can so, relate to this experience. <laughs> so I don't know, it was like my own medicine. And, uh, and then I started, you know, taking dance classes and fell in love with dance. Um, but at, like at each stage of my life, I have added a form of movement that has really challenged me and challenged me to have a different relationship, not just with my body, but I think really with how I wanted to be in the world. So, you know, I, I um, really committed to yoga uh, near the end of college and then into graduate school. And there was another sort of revelation that took place where um, I started to experience my body as uh, some something powerful, like it could learn to do hard things, which is different than like the euphoria of dance. And um, I started practicing Ashtanga Vinyasa yoga. And when you get to second series, it's all this backbending stuff. It's all this heart opening stuff. And it's a lot of falling over backwards stuff, which was like, you know, peak, not something I want to do. I don't want to be upside down. I don't want to fall over. I don't want to hit my head. I don't want to open my heart. <laughs> like, let's get rid of all that stuff. And so I experienced through that practice, like an awakening of courage and self-trust. And I've had similar experiences with boxing uh, and similar experiences with cycling and similar experiences uh, most recently with grit, which is a high intensity interval training program uh, that I now do three times a week. And if you had told me even like, I don't know, five years ago that I would be doing that type of workout and loving it, I would have thought it was impossible. Um, but so I feel like, so my love affair is like, isn't it, am I serial monogamous? I don't know how to describe it because movement is so many things, but you know, they always say you fall in love with someone because of how they make you feel about yourself. Have you heard that? Um, yeah. 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 So I think that's how I fell in love with movement because of how different forms of movement made me feel about myself. And I want to, I want to highlight a few things about this journey that I love. Um, and the first is that you have since this journey, like at various stages of this journey have studied the mind, the interaction with the body in the mind, and now have this like deep and nuanced understanding of the current body of evidence in that relationship and still are able to experience the euphoria, the courage, the power, like understanding it didn't change that for you. I know. I, yes, I'm glad that you appreciate that. I have also felt the same way about many psychological phenomena. So, so I used to teach psych one uh, intro to psych at Stanford, and we would always get these freshmen come in um, feeling like their world was shattered because we were talking about brain chemicals and things like love or purpose or whatever. And they'd be like, how can you reduce the mysteries of life to brain chemistry? I don't know how to live anymore. And we have to talk them through that sort of like well, how, how can you, you know, understand human experience as, as rooted in biology? You know, how can you begin to think about your mind as being in your body? And that's interesting and okay. And for me, I've always found that actually the concretization of it, 
I mean, to me, like neurotransmitters are the way that I feel about looking up at the sky, looking at stars, a sense of wonder. Uh, myokines, which I don't know if we'll talk about, but these things that your muscles release when you exercise that function as like drugs for your brain, but your muscles are making them. Your muscles are giving your brain antidepressant and anti-anxiety you know, molecules. It, it's the feeling for me, is just like lying back and looking at the stars. Uh, although to be honest, I'm much more in awe of our brains and our bodies than I even am of nature and the stars. It's just such a wonderful feeling. So it doesn't take away from the romance at all for me. It's this, it's it's like a miracle. I think I use that word a few times in the book too. If they, my editor was like, stop gushing. I'm like, but but it's so incredible. How could you not gush? Look at what we like, can do. Just say it. We get it. You don't need to add all the commentary. Well, let's talk like, about the book for a second. So the book is The Joy of Movement. It came out in 2020. I've already told you before we hit record, it is my most recommended book of the last, I don't know. I think I read it in July or June. When did it come out last year? It came out um, on New Year's Eve, 2019. Okay. So it stumbled into my life probably May or June. Um, and I don't remember exactly how, but it must've been some kind of divine like book drop into my life. And, um, you know, for me, one of the like big heart opener, let's use that word chapters was when you talk about adaptive fitness, because I have a, I have a chronic illness. I have a genetic condition that affects my joints. So as a fitness professional, I experience the industry very differently than somebody who's like, I, I hesitate to use the word genetically normal, but like whatever that might mean. Um, Cause there are a lot of things that I just don't get to like do. Um, and to have someone write like a love letter to fitness and movement and the experience of the body and what it means to, to create that relationship with yourself and also to have you include the narratives and the science of the journey of having an, a different kind of body yeah, and still loving movement and what, cause movement gave me many of the things you describe in the book, like literal physical freedom and hope, the, the bravery, tenacity, courage to do all these things that I was told I couldn't do. Um, and to have that relationship shared in a respectful way. And, and so when you talk about like the awe, the wonder, the understanding and the love affair that exists with your body to start uh, from a place. Yeah. Like it, yeah. It, I'm, Let, I could gush, I could gush. Talk. I want to jump in on this too because, so first of all, a couple of things. One is that was very intentional. And also it probably would have happened even if it wasn't intentional because in my world, people have disabilities, people have mental illness, people um, experience grief, people are in fat bodies. This is normal. This is not the exception. This is like, this is human reality. So of course I write a book about movement and that's who's in the book because that these are the bodies that human beings live in. And it's not like there's one special chapter for the people with movement challenges. It's just, this is, this is what humans are. And so pretty much every story in the book actually is, is based on somebody who is, you know, has Parkinson's disease or who has a disability or has a severe mental illness. It's not right. These aren't the exceptions to me. Um, but I did make a conscious choice to make that true. And part of it's also because growing up, so I've had chronic pain as long as I can remember. 
And my, my dominant experience for at least, you know, the first 20 years of my life, even though I loved exercise, if you would ask me, would you like to live without a body? That was like my dream. <laughs> like, could I just get through life without pain <laughs> to not have, there must be some way to not have a body. And so I don't come at this with that, you know, the love affair of a, my body as it like, because my body's always been easy to inhabit. It, it's a different kind of thing. And um, so I feel like that, I mean, it's, uh, it's like, Oh, I don't even know how to explain it, but um, you, I, 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 there's a part of me that's like, don't, don't cry on camera right now with Kelly McGonigal, because I remember that moment in my own illness onset and diagnosis. And, and I think for me, I find it important, imperative to talk about that as my experience as a practitioner, because so often I work with people who have followed the show or followed me on social media, they take one of my workshops and they have this projection of like, oh, well, you were probably always fit. It's like, well, no, when I was 23, I could barely walk. Um, and that relationship of being in pain and wanting to not have to grow through that, but also very often the growth is what teaches us these invaluable associations that you and I are talking about. And that the value of that, I mean, at some point in the book, I remember you talking about um, people who are like, yeah, I wish I didn't have this thing, but look at what I got, look at what I grew into. And that's very much how I feel about my illness and my work and, and, and movement. And I hear that some in you. And also thank you for like oh, sharing that, that on the mic. I mean, that's the entire theme of the previous book, The Upside of Stress, which is how do you come, how do you choose a mindset of uh, making meaning out of things that you would never have chosen for yourself, would not wish on anyone else. How do you, it's a stance that you can take to life. Um, I'm not all the time and not for everything. There are plenty of experiences in my life that I would cut out. Like, I don't wanna make meaning out of them, period. Like I'll never get to that point. But a lot of the, the challenges in life, including chronic pain, I have a deep appreciation for um, what, it drew out of me or the strengths that helped me cultivate, you know, so I often will tell the story of how when you grow up with chronic pain, like you said, when people look at you and they make assumptions about what your, your inner experience is like, you know, it from a very early age that people are walking around with suffering that is invisible. And so I actually, uh, what I used to say is that I'm not surprised by suffering. I don't assume that other people are happy or healthy, are not in this moment in pain, are not struggling with addiction, addiction or not grieving. I mean, for me, I just, I don't know. I kind of assume that everyone is carrying some kind of burden. And that is really um, a, I appreciate having that worldview. Um, and I see the costs of not having that worldview, whether it is, feeling alone in your suffering or not having empathy for people. Um, so yeah, so I like this mindset of making meaning out of things that you wouldn't have chosen is big. And is also in some ways to me, an antidote for toxic positivity, right? Like, yeah, I'm not a positive person in general. <laughs> uh, I think my man person you know would tell you I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> but what I'm not is cynical. So there's a big difference, right? Between, uh, I think the 
positive qualities that one can strive to cultivate because of what they do to help you avoid despair and, and contribute, stay engaged in the world. So things like I often will talk about wanting to maintain uh, my steadfast enthusiasm, to, which is really an antidote to my natural biological temperament, which is utter dread and despair. <laughs> and so I work at cultivating this kind of like inner, um, like just say yes, stop wanting to crawl under the covers and say no to life. And that's not positivity. It, it's like an energy that I can cultivate through things like grit and boxing and dance. Um, and that's so different than the idea that like you have to be happy or you have to put a positive spin on things or don't bring me your bad vibes. I mean, you know, the being comfortable with suffering is a very important. <laughs> Very important I'm reminded, skill. <laughs> um, I had Rhonda Cornum on the show talking about, oh, we were talking about real resilience more generally, but we were talking specifically about what I call pragmatic optimism and what she calls realistic optimism. Do you know Rhonda Cornum? Uh, no, but I have, I do know the term realistic optimism or strategic optimism or all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Short, like short version. She was the brigadier general who brought resilience to the army, okay. like, you know, little things. Um, but it, they essentially for the, for the listener, it's being really honest about the situation you're in your practical reality. What are you really dealing with? You know, that's the pragmatic, realistic piece, and then choosing the most proactive, hopeful next step forward, instead of like languishing in where you are the choice to move forward with whatever it is you've got going on, um, which once I, like having that framework has been wildly helpful for me and some of my clients in the last two years. Um, so that's, I hear, I hear that element in you. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you get there. Um, I, I heard from a mutual friend that we have a, a similar favorite question. Okay. Uh, which is, it is my favorite, my question to like stop a client in their tracks. <laughs> um, how do you want to feel? Okay. Can you talk a bit about like movement and feelings and like cultivating states and what, what that is, what that means? Like, what does that speak to, to you? Like, how do you want to feel Kelly McGonigal? Yeah. You know, I, I feel like I first learned this as a, like a psychological intervention from my Zen teacher where um, you know, she would often say people think they're gonna be happy when they get something or achieve something. And she would often ask the question, what do, you, what do you think that's going to feel like? What do you think that's going to be like? And why don't you just practice that now? Like this, this idea that instead of having to radically transform yourself in your life in order to experience something like courage, or, uh, or contentment or whatever that state is, that actually you can, you can cultivate those states directly through your attitude, through, through actions that naturally support those, those feeling states or those qualities. And so um, I think I just like started translating that to everything. So when I was working with people with behavior change and people would say, I wanna do X, Y, and Z. And you know, I'd say, well, okay, tell me how you think that's going to change your life. What's, if you do that, how will it feel? What suffering will no longer be there that's present now? Like, give me your hypotheses. And you know what actually is pretty funny? I don't know if you had this experience. I love that question because like half of the time people can't answer it. 
because it is not what they should be wasting their time on. It's like they heard somewhere or there's some like idea in their head they need to do this thing. And they can't even begin to imagine how, you know, that behavior will actually cultivate experiences, direct experiences they want in life. And that's such a good way to get people to redirect their energy and attention on things that have the true possibility of making a difference in your life as well. Um, for me and my practice, what I often encounter is when I first sit down with a client to do some kind of consultation and, and largely like I'm working in the sphere of like the overlap of fitness, wellness, well-being, and all they can tell me is avoidance. I don't want this. I don't want that. I want to not feel like that. And so it's like, okay, I should be exercising. I should be eating better. I should be this. Cause I don't want to be tired or unhappy, or I don't like my body or whatever, whatever. And, you know, I prime them with, okay, this is all avoidance and negative lens. Let's flip it into like a, a well-being lens. Give me something you do want. And they have never before in their life stopped and thought about how they, what they want to cultivate more of. And so that's the part that it, it's less about like, oh, I'm going to go on the keto diet because then I'll like my body or whatever. And much more about like, I don't even know what it is I'm actually doing any of this for. Yeah. And then we have a lot of home journaling homework. <laughs> we get to something to latch onto in terms of a lens. You know, it's, it's interesting. There's so compassion is really about wanting people to be free from suffering and loving kindness is about wanting people to flourish and experience positive states and growth and meaning and positive emotions and contribution and all of that. So often, you know, you, you come at it from that compassionate lens. People just want to be free from a bunch of stuff. They don't want the pain the self-doubt or the self-hate, the judgment of other people, uh, the fatigue, like, and that's compassion is such a great place to start with. And then I would often ask is, and like, what do you think would be present if that wasn't defining your experience? If self-hate wasn't the loudest voice in your head, what would be happening? If your body, if 90% of your energy or attention wasn't on the pain in your body, what what would be different? And that's sometimes when people can start to imagine that positive direction. That little bit of breath. Yeah. So talk to me about movement and feelings. Like how does movement cultivate feelings? So some of it's direct, some of it's brain chemistry. Uh, I love the metaphor part of it too. So let's make sure we like get on, get to all of those. Um, Cause sometimes I get, I get stuck on one and I forget the rest of them. Okay. I, I, mean, got, just, I got your three, I got your tip list right here. <laughs> I mean, let's, let's start with metaphor and physical sensation. Cause they often go together. So imagine that you are lifting something really heavy. You're, you're power lifting something like that. Um, when you lift something heavy, you are going to get signals from your muscles, your tendons, your connective tissue, uh, all that force and that tension, you will get signals that go to your brain that tell your brain, I'm lifting something heavy. And the brain really constructs a sense of self based on physical signals. So your brain doesn't just think in that moment, my, like my arms are lifting something heavy. It goes to, I'm sensing strength, I'm sensing power, and you get very quickly, I am powerful. And so one of the ways that movement creates feelings is the literal physical sensations. And so when you ask people about a form of movement they love, 
and why they love it. You'll often hear people say things like, I love swimming because in the water, I feel free. And they're talking about some very specific sensations of buoyancy, of being able to move forward, of a different relationship to gravity, all of this stuff. Uh, when, when people talk about, you know, why they love to run, sometimes it's like that sense of moving forward in life, but they, they feel that speed and it's a physical thing. I'm fast, I'm free, I'm moving forward in life, I'm going somewhere. And your brain is getting literal physical signals from your body that tell you that. And then that very quickly becomes a metaphor. So, you know, I've heard from so many people who talk about weightlifting as being, they very instinctively went from, I never thought I could lift something that heavy to I'm stronger than I thought I was to holy cow, if I can do this, what else am I capable of? And I feel like there's a lot of metaphor embodied in movement too, um, where people, whether you finish a race, whether you uh, accept help from somebody and learning something new, whether you um, you are willing to come out of your shell and express yourself in a dance class, it just we we understand that we're capable of doing that in other contexts as well. That that's part of who we are. And then there's the brain chemistry stuff, which we'll even get to later. But like, tell me about one of your favorite movements and how it makes you feel. Well, it's funny because what was popping into my head, two things popped into my head while you were talking about them. And, and I feel like I'm not trying to skip your question. So now I'm aware of me skipping your reflective reflecting back to me. I would say one of my favorite movements that I am currently unable to perform because of said chronic illness, but being able to do kettlebell swings in my late twenties, when I had been diagnosed with a joint condition in my early twenties, gave me such an incredible sense of accomplishment and this very visceral feeling that I, I'm not identified as my illness. Like my illness is not who I am. And, um, eventually getting up to, I think I, my PR was 260 on my deadlift. Cause I could never go for yeah. one RMs. It's not safe for me, but like getting to that point and like the, the older guy on and man who was my like uh, mentor and one of my closest friends now, like coaching me and teaching me how to lift safely in a body that like is different, just that whole relationship building. So I'd say that's like the answer to your actual question of like how a movement has made me feel. And there was a point in my life where I literally couldn't carry anything with my left arm at all. So be even farmers carry sometime for me or like, yeah, I can carry 24 kilo in my hand. Um, but it, this goes to something that I've felt very strongly about for a long time that was coming up for me as you were speaking is that not to politicize this, but I have long felt that female physical resilience is one of the most like feminist things any of us can do mm -hmm. is cultivate this state of physical empowerment because it is an active response to the idea that women should be weak, physically weak, physically small, passive in some way. Like we have a right to take up space and to feel our bodies in their full expression of their potential. And for me, fitness has always been a vehicle through which you could explore that and then make these really proactive decisions about who you're physically going to be in the world. Yeah. Uh, and I feel like a lot of what you just shared is the emotional side of that kind of empowerment. And I yeah. I mean, I, 
I heard very similar things. It's so funny when I'm listening, it's like you're saying things that other people have said to me. And to me, that's not like, that doesn't diminish the value of an individual story. What I, I just keep thinking, this is so human. Like literally, like, so I've never done anything with a kettlebell, except I think like move it once out of the way at the gym. So I could be, I guess, like get to the <laughs> stereo system. New York, but, I will teach you. Yeah, no, I totally want to, because I talked to this woman who thought she hated exercise until she was in her like mid forties and picked up a kettlebell. And she went through this in the book. I described it's like she described it like it was the, the most amazing, incredible physical pleasure she ever knew. And when she described it, I believed it. And then, you know, talking to uh, to um, a woman who found a similar kind of empowerment in jujitsu, learning to scream and fight, like make noise and take up space. Um, the thing is, these are core human strengths and at different seasons in our lives, to be able to tap into that is so important. I mean, everyone should have the opportunity to explore all of these things, the, the, the way that your body can give you access to, you know, to being a fighter, to cooperation and teamwork, to fun and play, to sensuality, to, to joy and musicality. I mean, the body is such an interesting vehicle and we spend so much time prioritizing how our body looks and feeling like our body is going to betray us at any moment with the next, you know, disease and, uh, or change, you know, age-related change and that sort of thing. And it's so, it's so sad and so pervasive. Well, and not for nothing. I, well, one of the things that I have loved and admired about you is your deep love of science married with your actively being a practitioner, right? Like you still instruct movement and mm -hmm. taught, taught my uh, dance class, Bollywood dance class this morning. I'm teaching a cardio dance class tonight. Excellent. I've been teaching clients uh, resistance training most of the day. Um, so you do you, I'll do me. <laughs> but, um, but we are in an industry that is taught, is taught. I don't fault the group fitness instructors, the yoga teachers, the fitness, the personal trainers on boots on the ground. Like we are taught that this is how you market movement is show people that they should not like the bodies that they are in. And that if they do this program that we are selling, they will be in a different body and then they'll like themselves more. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts about how we, as the, the like-minded practitioners of, of the wellness space, how do we get it out there that this is a, a this is a prize. This is a gem that we know that they don't. Yeah, it's, um, you know, one of the things that I often, I feel very strongly about this. It's why you will not see a single mention of anything connected to weight loss or changing appearance in the entire book. Uh, it, that is orthogonal to my life. I don't think about it. I don't care about it. Uh, I do realize some people care about it, but I truly and sincerely don't. Um, so, because I just, I see so many other clear there's so many other clear benefits and reasons to move that don't require losing weight or being free of disabilities or, or whatever, looking a certain way. Uh, and movement is not a reliable way to create those changes anyways. It's just not. Um, so, I mean, that is what the science says. But it is, it bears it in the science. Oh, you said it. You said yeah, it. I mean, well, of course, you know, if you dedicate your entire life to physical training, 
including what you eat and how you sleep and spending hours a day. Yeah, you can change your physique, but I mean, it, like there are some levers you can pull and push, but for most people, this is not. But I know nationally ranked female athletes who are technically soft quotes fat and have a technically overweight BMI because that's how they're built. Yeah. It is, you have to, I think most of the time people who are in moving in that direction or have some sort of their, their body is naturally inclined to whether it's, you know, build muscle or, um, but it really is not, it's not like a thing you can choose to do to say, if I exercise, I will create a certain physique or even a, a certain health outcome. It just doesn't work that way. But, um, the thing that I, the, the first thing I usually lead with when I talk to fitness professionals one is the very clear data that when people associate movement with weight loss or appearance goals, they enjoy it less, they are less likely to stick with it, and that is even if they reach their goals, which is not guaranteed. So you And correct me if I'm wrong, and if they reach their goals, they're less satisfied. Yes. Yeah. And if their goals were say related to social connection or enjoying what they're doing, or even, even other physical health goals, like having more energy, um, or managing a disease, um, like weight loss and appearance are the most likely to sabotage committing to movement. So people have to be honest about what it is that's working. You can sell people anything by appealing to shame or stigma or the desire to be in a different body. You, you can absolutely sell stuff. What you are less likely to do is change people's lives. And so you have to be clear about what your motivation is. And if your motivation is not just to sell things, but you want to empower people, you want to help people experience joy and connection and hope and courage and, and vitality and all, like you really, you want your movement offering to change their lives ending the conversation about weight and appearance is the quickest way to get there. Um, and it's tough because of course we live in a world where 99% of people, that actually is their first motivation too. And I struggle with this all the time. You know, when people come to class and they make comments related to wanting to lose weight or having gained weight, you know, it's not my job to step in there and be like, well, I don't want to hear any of that. You know, it's, it's, people have sincere goals related to that because of the way our society works. And so it's, it actually is challenging for professionals at all levels, even ones who want to get away from that conversation to have empathy and, uh, and then also introduce other ideas about what movement is for. And I often will, you know, I will talk about it in my classes as you know, I'll say things like, once I know that people are in the process of getting their exercise high, so I know that the endocannabinoids are flowing, I'll start talking about community. And maybe it's in that fourth or fifth song where I break people up a little bit and I make them dance around and look at each other. And I'm like, how great is it that we're dancing with other people? And some of them are strangers and some of them are friends. And I'm, it's like amazing that we're here together. She like slip that in. At the end of a stretch, talk about like, we're in some sort of like power posing stretch and like, like, how good does it feel to be alive right now that my heart is still pounding from that last track? Like, this is what it feels like to be alive. My heart is in it. You know, I just start saying stuff like that um, with the hope that that's going to connect with people's direct experience. Well, I think you bring it, I think you hit the money here and I'm just going to synopsis, like summarize it for the, for the listener is that it's a yes. And it's 
like, okay, you come with maybe these aesthetic goals or wanting to change something about yourself. Okay. You can have that. Let me show you this whole other world too. And what I have found is that along the way, people learn something they didn't know existed through, I'm just going to, I'm just going to crack this window and let's let some air in. And the discovery changes their path because they learned something about themselves. They didn't know was there. You have to give people permission to pay attention to something other than what their body looks like in the mirror, or we're doing this exercise to to burn calories or change what something looks like. There's so much filler that, that obscures what's actually happening. And so when people are able to pay attention to their direct experience, if they found the right community, the right movement form, the right intensity. I mean, it, a lot of this is a matching process. You can have miserable movement experiences. I do not mean to imply that everybody should be doing everything everywhere, right? It is, we talked about falling in love and it, so you know. We we also talked before we hit record about how I struggle with doing dance cardio in group rooms because I feel like a lanky, awkward, six foot one flailing 200 pound wild person. <laughs> like you want me to dance with all you dancing people? Okay, I literally was just learning choreography where one of the moves is tube man. Is what I, is what it I literally is arms. tube man. It's a very hot choreography. So you are already ready. Look you got me. one of the moves down. <laughs> Super on point. Okay, you mentioned endocannabinoids a minute ago. And it reminded me that we didn't talk about movement in the brain yet. And you made me promise that there would be three things and we didn't talk yeah. about. Tell, tell us about what movement does to the brain. So part Brilliant of woman. why movement uh, creates feelings, there is the feel better effect, which is uh, after just a few minutes of moving, if you haven't moved in a while and you're moving in a way that works for your body. So it's the body you have and something you can do and your heart rate, it increases a little bit. Maybe you're breathing more deeply. You're using some muscles. Um, you are going to have a release of dopamine and adrenaline. That is just true because you cannot move. <laughs> like your, your body cannot create movement without those two things. And they give you more energy and they tend to make people feel more optimistic, more focused, uh, happier that's the feel better effect. And so you can get that from like very small doses of movement. And again, doing a movement that like, yeah, like literally we could do a couple minutes of that and you probably would. Uh, yeah. I mean, for the, yeah. for the audio listener, I am waving my arms in the air. <laughs> yeah, you can't see what we're doing. We're still doing the tube man choreography. Yeah, for tube man. Uh, um, so that's the feel better effect. That's, that's easy to access. Um, and it's been demonstrated. I, I always want to say like, the things that I talk about have been demonstrated in every country on the planet, in every age group, with people with movement challenges, with people even in hospice care. I mean, like if you think there's an exception, people with chronic pain, people with severe depression, I'm telling you there is data that this is helpful, even though it can get more complicated. Or, you know, like if you're dealing with depression or grief, you do not want to move. And it's not going to be the same level of intensity, like an exercise high. If you are in the middle of grief and depression, it may be like you're going from having a thousand pound boulder on your chest to a 900 pound boulder. And it's a, a bit of a relief. I mean, there are differences in how we experience this, but the basic core idea has been really reliably demonstrated. So that's the fast feel better. And then if you engage in movement for about 20 minutes or more of moderate intensity or more, you're going to start getting uh, the release of chemicals like endocannabinoids and endorphins, 
which um, of course they make you feel great. They are the chemicals that, uh, you know, drugs like cannabis and heroin and cocaine and all that are, are mimicking at uh, very high levels. But when it's endogenous through exercise, uh, endocannabinoids and endorphins, they start to dampen down things that feel bad, pain, rumination, anxiety, anger, all of that become less represented and processed in your brain. So they could still be there in your body. Like you still may have stuff that's real, but you feel better because your brain is changing in a sense, what it's paying attention to and what it's amplifying for your, your direct experience in this moment, which is a kind of cool way to think about it. So all the stuff that like the inner suffering gets dialed down. And then both of those brain chemicals also amplify anything that feels good or motivating. So if something is beautiful, it's more beautiful. If something feels physically good, it feels better. Um, if something is delicious, it tastes better. Um, if, if you are looking forward to something, you look forward to it even more. If uh, you enjoy someone's company, you enjoy their company even more. Everything pleasurable, joyful, and meaningful is enhanced. So um, that, again, that's like the exercise high. And sometimes it feels like this amazing euphoria, depending on what ratio and intensity you're releasing those chemicals. But sometimes what it feels like, which I often will feel, is I start out with a kind of low-level state of dread. That's like, that's like my default. <laughs> and by the end of a workout, I am like really glad to be alive. And just to get to like, I am here for this, like a will to live. And uh, a greater willingness also to connect with other people, you know, to not be avoidant, to not be socially anxious, to not want to go into a cocoon in a bubble. Those are the main differences I notice from an exercise high. Um, more hope, more desire to engage with challenges and with people, human beings. And uh, so that's part of how exercise makes you feel. And I would just encourage people to pay attention. Like you can literally just do a word before you start, describe how you feel and a word after describe how you feel and notice how it sets you on an upward spiral. So if it's the right workout for you, you're not going to spend the rest of the day recovering from it. I mean, you might be tired. You might be sore the next day. Those things are real, but it's not like the best part of your day was the workout. Do you know what I mean? It should leave you a, a better version of yourself in every role and relationship that matters to you. It should make you feel like you can take on challenges. You should have energy for other projects and relationships. You should find yourself being a better listener or a better partner um, or a better leader. And uh, that's another good way to figure out whether movement is like you're finding what I would call the joy of movement. And, and nice plug for your book. <laughs> um, it, it, there's a few things there that jump out to me, like so often, whether it's personal training group, fitness, dance, whatever, like we fetishize high intensity, like overwhelming workouts that make us feel like we've been crushed. Um, but this an adaptation in the brain that you're describing. And I think what I hear you driving home at the end here is like moderate. Well, that, Okay. I'm not saying that's that those other end. things don't have their own ands. I'm just saying that like, yes. Hey, if you're trying to like, if you're grief, depression, anxiety, well, anxiety is different. And I bet that's something that you're going to talk about in a second, but like grief, depression, low emotional states, low regulation states, you're struggling to get yourself moving. And you feel like, Oh, 
well, if I don't go whole hog at this workout, it won't count. So I won't work out anyway. No, 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 my friend. Like you feel like you don't have the energy, just go for a walk. And that's yeah. good enough. Yeah, it is. And again, like your direct experience will, will tell you. Um, so absolutely everything is good. There's no dose too small to like to start to get the feel better effect. And if what you're looking for is a classic exercise high, that just sort of like you, you feel better, you're a better version of yourself and you've got lots of energy and hope for the rest of your life. Yeah. The research says moderate intensity, which is you can talk while you're doing it. Like that's a great, I don't, I don't do metrics. I don't have a heart rate monitor. I'm not, I'm not looking at all that stuff, but I know if I can talk while I'm doing it, it's that's moderate intensity. And if I can't talk, that's high intensity. If I'm struggling with my clients, but so, so here's the also part. This was something I did not appreciate until I did all the research and talked to people. So looking at the science and talking to people, and then the pandemic really revealed this to me in my own life. So I started to see in the research that almost every benefit I was interested in, like does moving together increase feelings of social connection and belonging? Does doing a movement, does movement help reduce depression? Uh, does movement change your brain in ways that make you more sensitive to pleasure and joy? The things that I really cared about, um, does it help you recover from trauma? Is that intensity seems to amplify everything. And I didn't want to hear that because I'm not drawn to intense movement practices. In fact, a lot of intense movement practices scare me. Like when I first started hearing people describe, I won't even name, I don't- That thing that happens in a box? Yeah, I was like- that sounds like my worst nightmare. Um, so to me, I'm I not- thought that sounds like it's going to pay my rent because a bunch of people are going to get hurt, get out of physical therapy and not know what to do anymore. And then they're going to hire me. Yeah, well, that, that also too. I mean, we're, I know, we're not talking about <laughs> the mechanical stuff too. Anyway, but I, so I'm not naturally drawn to it, but the research has kept what, whatever you were looking at, whatever outcome intensity was not required for these effects to happen but they seem to amplify it. And when I talk to people who were really suffering, particularly from from mental health issues like grief and addiction and depression and severe depression, like suicidal depression across your lifespan, not uh, it's sort of the first time incidental depression. um, People talked about intensity, needing the intensity of it, that the intensity was like the right dose of medicine. And I had that experience when COVID hit and everything meaningful in my life disappeared. Work, relationships, everything. Like I went from 110, running at 110 to zero for months, just because of how my life was constructed, where my family lived, what my professional roles were, and the fact that I wasn't, I was not essential in any way. So just, you know, and I couldn't see anyone in my family and or my friends. It was really like, and I swear the only thing that got me through it was starting to do grit. Just to literally, I needed to get my heart rate up that high to feel a will to live. And that was the first time I'd really felt that. And I suddenly understood what some people had told me when I was writing the book about how sometimes the intensity is what drags you out of the depth of the whole. So I feel like the reason I jumped in with that yes end thing is um, because 
what, when I've done interviews like this, the most common thing people tell me they like about the book is that often what they will literally say is, so you, I don't have to run a marathon. I don't have to like, I don't even have to break a sweat. And I didn't realize, did I, I was like, did I, it was that the main takeaway message of the book? No, um, no. Because I want to make sure that people hear both. You don't have to break a sweat. You definitely don't have to run a marathon, but you might want to. And it's, uh, you are allowed to be curious about the intensity that serves you at th this time in your life. Uh, for me and the people in my world who I have like shoved the book in their hands and demand that they read it, uh, it was the main takeaway of the book for us was not, oh, you don't have to work out hard. Um, <laughs> it was more around this lines of why are we talking about physical activity the way that we do when the world needs this other thing right now. Um, and so I guess I will button by just me sharing that for me and my COVID experience, like I was in New York city in a collapsed industry fitness. Um, I had COVID first wave while I was in grad school, I developed COVID pneumonia as a fitness professional. I spent months trying to recover, but once I, I, I worked very, very slowly to get back to being able to run because I having, having read the book and having this much more nuanced understanding of my own mental health through like, Oh, exercise has been, that's what it was doing for me all along. Ha ha. Um, that even when I couldn't run because I couldn't breathe, I was still at least like walking around the block every day and trying to find these opportunities to get movement in and through all of these other things that have stretched out over the last 18 months, getting my clients who can't run to go for walks, getting the clients that are, will dance to dance, like whatever it was that would get their heart rate up. Because I had a lot of clients who were like, have chronic illnesses. They're doing corrective exercises. Like that's, you know, the best they can do. I put in soft quotes and like, but, but it's interesting. One of the things I realized after I finished the book, sometimes there are these accidental themes that you didn't intend to do. And at the end of the book, I was, wow, there's a lot of stories in this book about people having to learn to walk again, which I totally, like I plan for that, but I'm like, there's something that's really powerful about that. And of course, in, in all of these stories, they were literally having to learn how to walk again after like a stroke or open heart surgery. Um, but it's, there's something so powerful about the fact that humans have the capacity to learn to walk again. Um, or, or Joanna learning to walk again after being paralyzed. Um, I don't know what it was that drew me to that, but when you were describing that story, I mean, that really is, that, that's like a core human story, whether we're talking about literally being able to walk again or being able to move forward in life. Well, I have drawn deep inspiration from your work. I hope that the listeners of this show have as well, uh, and maybe some more nuanced understanding of their own experiences. And then for those who affect other people's experiences, which like on some level we all do, but some more directly than others, uh, maybe it's tweaked some of their thinking about how we talk about bodies and this love affair of movement. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with me. Well, thank you for lip syncing to get into the groove. I wish you could license that song for the outro. <laughs> Right. Can you sing it? Is that legal? <laughs> Probably not. I don't know. I don't know if it's legal. We're gonna, we can stop recording and then we'll sing it together. We can put it on Instagram.
Hey there, let's